Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live in the Washington, D.C. area, Saturday mornings from 9 till 10 on the following frequencies. 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, and 1039 FM HD2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And it's another day in the bunker. <laughs> Groundhog Day. Another day in the bunker. Exactly yeah. right. Uh, we are uh, still in social isolation, as they say. And uh, But technology does move on. And the good, the good news is, even with social isolation, Stratford University has been doing quite well. We went totally remote, totally online, and the students are, are thriving. So we managed to do this transition quite efficiently, and mm-hmm. um, I'm really proud of the staff and everything they've been doing. Now, today, we're going to talk about the co- coronavirus modeling, because these models that, that have been coming out of um, Imperial College and University of Washington have been driving policy. And, uh, and I think people would just like to know something about the models. So I'm going to talk about the models, why they disagree with each other, and what we can learn from the models. It's really quite interesting. And um, even, even, uh, even our government leaders are now looking at the models and, and directing policy with that. Um, Stephen Wolfram, uh, he released the Wolfram Physics Project on April 14th, and it is an amazing website. I'm going to talk a little bit about it. I was really put onto that because of uh, because of a letter that we had uh, earlier today. Mm-hmm. And we are going to feature Neil Morris Ferguson. He is the man who ran the study and authored the paper that predicted that there would be 2.2 million deaths in America if we did nothing in way of social isolation, and that there would be 500 deaths in the UK. I have the actual paper that was read by uh, Trump's team as well as by uh, Boris uh, Johnson's team over there in the UK, and they totally changed policy based on this paper. So I thought I would go back and talk about the assumptions were in the paper, uh, why there are other competing models, but it's interesting. But Neil Morris Ferguson is the man who authored the paper. So we'll feature him in Profiles NIT. By the way, he's a theoretical physicist. Uh-huh, of course. Uh-huh. So One of your guys. was appealing to me. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Susan in Alexandria. Good morning, Dr. Schertz. And Mr. Russ. Mr. Russ, what is with that? Yeah. Wow. Gosh, what happened to the discussion on the coronavirus models? Did you think we weren't paying attention? I promised (laughs) them last week. Time management, gentlemen. What is she, the program director? What is this all about? (laughs) Time management, or do you just want to leave the show with them wanting more? 
Well, yeah, that's the that's the ticket. That's the key. Well, Susan, we got carried away with the smart toilet and butt recognition last week. Because after all, we are boys. <laughs> that's right, and that and it crowded out the coronavirus model. But today, we're going to get even. We're we're definitely going to cover corona, coronavirus model. It's uh it's high on the hit list on today's show. Mm -hmm. We got an email from Arnie in Colorado Springs. Hi, Doctor Shirts. As a physicist, you may be interested in this. I thought you would like to see what uh, Stephen Wolfram had been doing when he, rele he released the, 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 the physics model. And he has a website called The Path to the Fundamental Theory of Physics, and it's beautiful. I'll tell you, Arnie, I looked at that. And I haven't had a chance to, he's got 900 pages of papers on there. I haven't had a chance to go through all of it, but I started reading it. It is absolutely fascinating. I'll talk briefly about it later in the show, and then I think next week I'm going to give a, a more in-depth discussion of it because I think this is really groundbreaking work that he's doing. And thanks for that suggestion. Yeah. I didn't know about it until I saw it. We got an email from John in Kansas City. Is a six-digit PIN really all that more secure than a four-digit PIN? You know, you, you get your new cell phone, and they make you put in a six-digit PIN. And that means you got to remember six digits. Now Exponentially, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, my wife says that two extra digits should not make much difference at all. But I think it does make a difference. What are your thoughts, John in Kansas City? Well, John, a six-digit pin is much more secure than a four-digit pin. I'll tell you why. A four-digit pin has 10,000 possible combinations. That sounds pretty impressive, but actually you could, you know, you could run through those pretty quickly if sure. you had a computer. Mm -hmm. Six digits have a million possible combinations. So there's a big difference between 10,000 and, and a million. Yes. So it's like a, a lot few zeros. more secure. That's right. So I definitely, I definitely, definitely believe in the, in the six-pin choice. And so I always opt for that. We got an email from Alex in Falls Church, Virginia. Dear Doc and Jim, when I bought my laptop, the salesman told me that Windows 10 does a horrible job in keeping the system optimized and running smoothly. He said I needed to buy a program called System Mechanic and clean up Windows every few months. He told me the most important feature was registry optimization and that I would definitely have to optimize my registry every time. But somebody at work said that optimizing a registry could be dangerous. Is that really true? Hmm. Alex and Fairfax. Well, Alex, it is useful to sort of tweak your computer and keep it you know, keep it uh, keep it running. Uh, it's not true that you need to optimize the, your registry database. It it is true that over time you'll get items cluttered up in it, but there's very little evidence that it actually speeds things up. There is evidence, though, that occasionally these optimizers make a change to your registry, and then your computer won't boot up, or or Windows will not be behave correctly. So. I don't really optimize the registry. I just let that be. But there are other tools that, that you can use that basically will clean up your hard drive and get rid of unwanted files. Now, I use CC Cleaner. I've used CC Cleaner for years and years, and I'll, I'll use it to, you know, to clean up unwanted things on, the, uh, on, on, my, uh, on my computer. Uh, I, don't, I don't use the registry optimization. Fee. They, that will do registry op optimization, but I don't do that. There's also a disk cleanup utility 
which is built into Windows. So you, you can go to the Windows utilities and there's a disk cleanup there that, that actually is pretty, pretty, uh, pretty good. It gets rid of, of unwanted files. There's also another program, which I like, called the Geek Uninstaller. And it, and it will go through and it, it will uninstall programs completely. See, a lot of times when, when a program is uninstalled, it doesn't, it doesn't get rid of every little bit that they put on your machine. But Geek un Uninstaller goes through and does a great job of removing files. So, so you could use those tools to you know, keep your computer um, running smoothly. We got an email from Donna in Kansas. Dear Tech Talk, my old laptop wouldn't come on the other day. The motherboard was bad. And uh, the computer repairman said it wasn't worth fixing. So I bought a new laptop. Now the problem is I got literally thousands of photos on my dead laptop's hard drive, and I desperately want to get them off. And, and I went to, um, to the computer store, and they said they were going to charge me $100 to do that. Well, I don't want to pay $100 for that. Uh, is there any way I can get, get these photos myself? Well, actually, Donna, it's very easy to do this. Um, uh, all you have to do is uh, you have to get an, a SATA, S-A-T-A, to USB adapter. Now, the, the plug on your hard drive in your uh, computer is an S-A-T-A. That's the, that's the format. So you want SATA to USB adapter. Just go to Amazon. Uh, you can get those adapters. they got a whole bunch of them. They're all less than $10. So just buy a SATA to USB adapter. Then what you want to do is remove the hard drive from your dead computer. Just flip it over on its back. You know, there'll be remove the plastic cover and then remove the tiny screws that are holding the drive in place and then pull it, gently pull it out. And then once you've got it out, you simply can plug it into the SATA to USB adapter and, uh, and then plug the USB into your new laptop and then it will act like an external hard drive. So just simply now... You know, go go to my computer, you know, find the drive that's assigned to that external hard drive. Go there, find the subdirectory where your photos are located, and just copy them to the to your new computer. It should be an should be an easy thing to do. Should be very easy to do. We got an email from Jim in Bowie, Maryland. Dear Tech Talk, I've been listening to your cut the cord shows and I recently purchased a tableau. So I could stream over the area TV on my Wi-Fi network. It has a remote feature that allows me to access TV even when I'm out of the house. But when I set up the port forwards on my Verizon Fios router, remote access works for a while and the ports forward properly. But then it stops working and I've got to reset it again. And it'll only stay working for a few days. Is there any solution to this problem? Because I love being able to access my over-the-air television from my cell phone, you know, any anywhere that I am, or even if I visit somebody's, I can I can access it. Well, there is, um, you know, I looked at this, Jim. I had the same problem too. Tableau has this remote access, but in order to do remote access, you you have to do port forwards within the router, and they have a <clears throat> the router actually has what they call universal plug-and-play. And when you activate remote access, the Tableau will go into the universal plug-and-play. It will automatically set the port forwards for you. But it turns out that uh, once you've enabled universal plug-and-play in your router, it also enables cleanup enabled. Now, what the cleanup does, 
it will look around at ports that have been created, and if they haven't been used for a while, it'll just delete them. So um, the, the router, by default, has cleanup enabled. So if you aren't using your Tableau remote access every day, or if you don't use it for a few days, it'll just, it'll just clean up those ports, and, and they'll be gone. So what you have to do is you, you've got to go into the router, go into, the, uh, go into your Fios router, and then look for universal plug and play. And when you get to that page, just uncheck cleanup enabled. Now I'd go through and just delete all of the uh, all the ports that are in there. So you so you so you got a clean clean start. And then you go back to the Tableau and simply turn it off and turn it back on again. And when you enable on the Tableau remote access, it will create those ports automatically, and it'll be good to go. I did that with my computer or with my tableau and I, my remote access works perfectly it's no longer disappearing we got an email from david in boulder dear tech talk i've been hearing about the dark web scans that are trying to sell my private information that's been stolen what do these um you know uh you know on the dark web there are um websites where people will sell uh, passwords, they'll sell social security numbers, they'll sell, you know, all kinds of things on the web that, uh, that, that they found when they, when they hack into servers and they, they try to monetize it. And there is actually a service that will scan for you to see whether any of your stuff is on the dark web. And so it's called, I Have I Been Pawned? Have I Been Pawned? P-W-N-E-D. Have I Been Pawned? And um, and so what you do is you 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 can go to uh, you can go to haveibeenpawned.com and you can ask them to scan. It'll ask scan for your email address. It you know you you can put in your email address. It'll scan it with your email addresses coming up, and it will see if there are passwords associated with your email address. So you can actually find out what's on the dark web about your specific thing. So haveibeenpawned.com is kind of a Fun thing to do to see whether you're out there or not. Uh, we got an email from John in Bethesda. Dear Tech Talk, uh, I, I listen to Tech Talk every Saturday morning, but sometimes I miss the show. Where can I find the podcast so I can listen to the show later in the week? Tech Talk's very informative, John in Bethesda. Well, John, you can go to the Stratford website. Just go to techtalk.stratford.edu. And um, and you can you can you can sign up for the podcast there. There's an there's a there's a a podcast feed there, and you can subscribe to it there. You can go to Apple iTunes, search for Stratford Tech Talk. You can go to Podcast One, uh, and search for Tech Talk Radio. You can go to Stitcher, and you can search for Stratford University Tech Talk. It's all it's on a lot of the uh, podcast aggregation sites because it's. Uh, our podcast feed is public, and a lot of these sites just scan all the feeds whenever we have an update. So um, you should be able to get this about any time you want. Listen, we love your hey, emails. But you know, it'd be a great way to have a uh, Tech Talk quarantine, right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right, a Tech Talk quarantine. You can sit there, and you can listen. Listen, we've got 20 years' worth of Tech Talk on, on the web. Uh-huh. So you could you could listen you could listen you know twenty four seven to tech talk and just have a grand old time there at home. <laughs> you could. 
<laughs> All right, you're saying you like uh, emails. Send the emails. Yeah, Tell us where. Yeah, we like your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. We'll be back in just a minute. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talk tech, talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Neil Morris Ferguson. Neil Ferguson is a professor of mathematical biology mm. who specializes in the patterns of spread of infectious diseases. He's from Imperial College, and he's the man who's been informing government leaders to put us in social isolation. Now, Ferguson was born 1968 in Cumbria, but he grew up in Mid-Wales. He attended Lenidlo's High School in Wales. Now, his father, he was an educational psychologist. His mother was a librarian. But then, if you can imagine this, she became an Anglican priest. That's interesting. That is amazing. I mean, that's, that's quite, quite a, a shift. change, yeah. Quite a shift from librarian to Anglican priest. So I wonder, uh, but he couldn't call her father. I mean, <laughs> I'm, Reverend? I, 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 Reverend. Oh, yeah, that's it. That's he, probably he, what – Reverend just, mom. I don't know. I'm guessing mom still works. I would say mom still works, yeah. <laughs> he received a Master of Arts degree in physics. He's a physicist. That's why I like this guy. Yeah, 1990. Plus, he did something very topical, too. Yeah, and he's, yeah. he got a Doctor of Philosophy in Theoretical Physics in 1994. Both of them were from Oxford University. Now, his doctoral thesis dealt with, he was modeling, actually, crystals, and he, crystalline structures, and it was, he was modeling the transition from crystalline formation to a dynamically triangulated random surface. It was a phase transition of a type, 
And that, so he was um, very much into this kind of modeling. Now, Ferguson was part of Roy Anderson's group of infectious disease scientists who moved from the University of Oxford to Imperial College in November of 2000. So they sort of defected from, from, uh, from Oxford and they went to Imperial College. And these two groups have been competing with each other. So we've got the Oxford models and we've got the Imperial College models and they're still competing with each other. Now, in 2001, Ferguson started modeling the UK's foot and mouth outbreak. <laughs> I'm laughing because when I was a kid, my grandmother used to, whenever we were doing something that seemed uncleanly, my grandmother would say, you know, you want to get hoof and mouth disease, which is people yep. used to call it hoof and mouth disease. You remember that? Yeah, hoof and mouth disease. Yeah. <laughs> hoof and mouth disease. Which makes it sound even worse, right? Yeah, it does. <laughs> it does. And so he, he started modeling that in 2001. Then he and his colleagues founded the Medical Research Council Center for Global Infectious Disease Analysis in 2008. And they began consulting with the government. Now, during the swine flu outbreak in 2009, Ferguson and his colleagues endorsed the closure of schools. Already back in 2009, they said, you know, isolation is really a deal. And so he was already talking about mitigation techniques to sort of bring that under control. Now, in 2013, he contributed to research on the MERS co uh, coronavirus, and that was during the, they had the MERS outbreak in the Middle East. And he documented the link to dromedary camels. So this was a, this was a, a virus that was coming from the camels uh -huh. in the Middle East, you know. So, um, like the, well, the current virus that we've got came from bats. So they, they, yeah. they're, they're these they're these animal to 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 human uh, transmissions. In 2014, Ferguson provided data to the World Health Organization on Ebola in West Africa. Now, in addition, he's been working on all sorts of uh, mosquito-borne diseases, including Zika fever, yellow fever, dengue fever, and malaria. Those are all viruses that are transmitted by mosquitoes. In 2015, his team modified the model, which was dealing with the spread of dengue virus, uh, and they figured out that if they would infect the mosquitoes with a particular variation of the virus, this is the Wolbachia virus, that, they, that the mosquitoes would not reproduce as quickly, and that actually allowed them to, to control this much more efficiently. Now, why he's important now is that in February of 2020, Ferguson and his team used statistical models to predict the spread of COVID-19 from China. 2015. Yeah, um, yeah no, 2020. 2020, February, I'm sorry. February of 2020. This, this, and they were predicting the, uh, the spread of COVID-19 from China. Now, his team estimated only 10% of the actual cases were being detected in China. They didn't really feel like China had any kind of measurements. So they didn't know how many people had it. Mm -hmm. and, they, and, and, they were, and they also calculated that only one in three of the people who came from China to the UK had their infection detected. And so he said that the coronavirus could affect up to 60% of UK's population and that it would be comparable to a major influenza 
pandemic that we had that we that we, we had in the early uh, 20th century. Now, what really affected it is you you it, what affected the sort of the dramatic results is Ferguson ba- began looking at the uh, case of Italy. Mm-hmm. When they did the initial models, he was assuming that a fewer percentage of people would have to be in the ICU because in China they were using oxygen and uh, for about half of the people that were critical, and then they had ventilators for the other half. So he just assumed that you'd need, uh, you know, 15% of the people would would need ventilators. But when he looked at the results in Italy, he realized that oxygen didn't work and people had to go straight to ventilators. So all of a sudden, he had to double the number of ICU rooms that would be required, and that immediately created a strain in in the whole in the whole healthcare system. So they published a paper. I've got the paper here. It's a twenty-page paper. This thing, this paper came out March sixteenth of twenty twenty, and what they're saying here is that you go and the thing that that was scaring scaring uh, the uh, Trump administration as well as Boris Johnson is figure one in the study. It shows what happens if you have no mitigation. You don't have any social isolation at all, and they're predicting that 2.2 million people would die in the U.S., Mm -hmm. and 500,000 would die in the U.K. Mm. The day after this, I I think the uh, government officials got copies of this paper about a week earlier because almost based on this paper, they just shut down everything. And this was, but but there are a lot of assumptions that go into this uh, paper and all, you know, in terms of what, you know, the, you know, the and sort of the dominant assumption that you have to have is what is the um, reproduction re, reproduction rate? In other words, how many people if somebody has infected, how many people will they infect? And he was assuming a reproduction rate of 2.3. So it was between 2.2 and 2.4, and um, and that means that each person would infect 2.3 2.3 to 2.4 other people, and that means that you double the number of um, cases every five days. So he actually, um, his paper was really the driver here. Now, I'm going to talk about, there's another model, uh, the, the Oxford model, that was actually far less dire in its predictions. The Oxford model um, basically said that they felt that, all, that 63% of the people in the UK had already had it because it came in earlier. And they they were predicting a much different result than the uh, than the Imperial College model. I, later on, I'll, I'm going to give give a blow by blow comparison of the two models. Yeah, you're because, supposed to do that last week, you know, as we were I'm, called out earlier well, in the program I, for our negligence. Yes, I was supposed to do that last week because the but this week, fortunately, we're not talking about the smart toilet. So I, I think we'll have plenty of time to get through this thing. You haven't bought one yet, have you? Because no, you're I have, a gadget guy. I know. I, I, it, they're still in research now, but uh, I think what uh, I think I, but you should I, be a uh, part of the uh, beta testing. I, I'll, I'll I'll see if I can do that. So what what happened is that Ferguson, uh, you know, is now he's on. You, you look at him. He's he's everywhere. He's interviewed by everyone. And I'll talk about how he's modified his model as we get through this thing. He was appointed to the Order 
of the British Empire, an OBE in 2002 for his work on modeling the uh, hoof and mouth outbreak. They call it, for some reason, uh, foot and mouth. Foot I think and mouth, hoof yeah. and mouth. I think hoof and mouth is better than foot and mouth. Well, it gets your attention, and <laughs> yeah, and it sounds somewhat. You know, you know what it is, right? No, you remember, it, no, it, I can't quite. It, I can't it, quite remember. It, it, it's it's a common infection that causes sores and ulcers inside and around the mouth, a rash or blister on hands. It's mostly on children, feet, legs, or ba- your backside. Wow. It can be painful but not serious. So, how do you get it? Close contact, such as kissing, hugging, sharing cups, and eating utensils. Coughing and sneezing. Contact with poo. For example, changing a diaper or contact with blister fluid. Wow. There you go. So uh, so I hope you're enjoying breakfast. Well, thank you very much. Now, on on March 18th, two days after the paper came out, he developed symptoms of COVID-19. Wow. Now, if you remember... Uh, Boris Johnson had it. He did, yeah. So he went to the government to report on his paper and present the results of his paper. And it looks like at that presentation, when he was talking to the government is when he got it. So but maybe now, he got it from Boris? Is that what you're thinking? I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's it's hard to know. Or maybe or maybe Boris got it from him. I'm, I don't, uh, you know, That's I'm possible. not really certain on the timing. Well, well Boris but anyway, got very lucky. He did. So now he's in uh, he's in self isolation now, and he's he's doing very well. He's it's not a problem at all. And we'll good. get. I'm gonna I'm gonna go into the models a little bit a little bit later to get more detail. So there you, there's everything you need to know about Neil Morris Ferguson, the man at the center of the coronavirus modeling bonanza. Hope you're paying attention because we're going to play the pop quiz after the break, and it's your chance to win a free prize, which you'll be able to claim someday. So stay tuned. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Time for you to talk, Doc. 
Oh yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, this is this is, of course, not simply a um, a radio show. It's a classroom of the airway. That is correct. And what we're going to be Wait doing is hang on yes? a second. No, it isn't time for you to talk. We have to, we're we're so out of sync here. We need to do this thing first. Where is it? Here we go. There we go. Sorry about that. That's okay. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Russ, featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Yes, thank you. Thank you, thank you. you know, I, I love think this. I may have today. contracted hoof and mouth disease, and it does it, affect your brain, by the way. It could be. Well, you know, this is not simply a, a radio show. It's a classroom no. of the airways, and we have to evaluate whether your audience has been listening. Yes. With the pop quiz. And if you get the right answer to the pop quiz, you'll get two tickets to fine dining at one of our restaurants. You just have to hold on to these tickets, then the restaurant will be reopening. <laughs> eventually. It will. Eventually, yes. <laughs> and by the time it does, you'll really be ready for a good meal, right? Yeah, you, uh, yeah, that's right. We'll have really the best of the best food when they finally reopen. Yeah. So earlier in the show, I talked about Neil Morris Ferguson. He, of course, is the man behind the big coronavirus model that's coming out of um, Imperial College. Now, his father was, a, uh, was an educational psychologist, and his mother was a librarian. But later in life... She changed careers, and what career did his mother select? If you know the answer to today's question, now is your chance to pick up the phone and give us a call. you got nothing else to do. If you're dialing from west to the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're washing your hands repeatedly and vigorously in Canada... Call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-39333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line. It's squeaky clean, 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. Good to hear he's in good spirits, right, Doc? Yes, yeah, everything is, uh, hey, it sounds like he is on track. You know, you know what they say, Once, when Mr. Big Voice is happy, everyone else is happy. Yes, yes, okay. indeed. Now, let me talk about the Wolfram Physics Project, and I'm going to go more detail on it next week. I'm going to explain it briefly. Okay. So Stephen Wolfram, he unveiled a new website, the Wolfram Physics Project, and the subtitle is A Project to Find the Fundamental Theories of Physics. And his aim is to basically crowdsource some of his research and get input from the world. Now, he's written several documents on this website that explain what it's going on, but it's quite amazing. He basically, uh, you know, he, he, he formed a computation company. He was a physicist, theoretical physicist, many years, and he formed a computation company. And he's been thinking about this for a long time. And his basic premise is this. He says the universe and all of our physical laws look complex, but he believes that there's some under lying model that's extremely simple from which everything develops. And that was the basic idea of this. 
So he thinks that the universe can be modeled using points in space and rules that, when applied, generate more points. And if you have the right rule, you'll generate space. You'll generate space that has three dimensions. If you pick the wrong rule, you'll generate space that, that maybe has uh, 2.8 dimensions. And you will basically create the entire rules of the universe just from very simple rules. Now, he's already begun doing He's worked with two other physicists. They've already come up with this model. They've been processing it. And he, and he was able to demonstrate that general relativity and quantum mechanics are basically two sides of the same coin. They, they basically naturally come out of this process. Now, even though he doesn't think he has the exactly the right starting rules, he's getting really interesting results. But he said he wants to figure out the exact starting point, and he wants people to help him. So you can log on to this site, and you can suggest more rules. They're running the modeling. He thinks this is uh, probably going to really provide the final unification of physics, where we can bring the physics of relativity, of general relativity, and, and, and actually match it up with the physics of quantum mechanics, and when you can predict gravity as well as all the electron, all the other electromagnetic forces. So this is really exciting. I only had a chance to read about half of the half of one paper. I'm going to talk about it more next week because I think this is just a huge, huge mm -hmm. breakthrough. We don't have a winner yet, so if you would, Doctor, please ask the question once again. Yeah, Neil Morris, his mother, his mother, of course, uh, was a librarian, but. Later in life, she changed careers. What did she become? May I offer an alternate question as well? Okay, you can okay. certainly do that. Okay, mine would be, how does one contract hoof and mouth disease? Now, of course, okay. we, have to give people, we have to give people the, the number to call. 877-9-3639-333. That, of course, the international line. Continue on, Doc. Yes, let's talk about the uh, dueling coronavirus models. And then I can, this is kind of long, but I'll, uh, we can just stop if somebody, if somebody calls in. Okay. So the language of models is really, it's all mathematical. And uh, models are really no better than the input data. Now, Britain had been moving toward an approach in the beginning where they were called herd immunity. Now, this is where you just let everyone get it. And then eventually, 80% of the people have it and they're immune to it because they've, they've had the disease. And then it stops spreading. And so Britain was originally just going to do that until researchers at Imperial College reported on that March 17th paper the impact of going slow and how devastating it would be. I mean, even um, even the U.S. was going to go through the herd immunity method, just not do that much. But when Imperial College published this result, uh, Boris Johnson changed direction on a dime, and Donald Trump changed direction. And his team, they stopped. Trump stopped calling it uh, like the flu, and immediately we went into mitigation. Now. Here's the interesting thing. A week later, the team, which was at Oxford University, which was led by Sunatra Gupta, professor of theoretical epistemology, epidemiology, epi, 
epidemiology. Epidemiology, yeah, epidemiology. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. I'm here to help. <laughs> Thank you so much. And they basically came up with an entirely different model with dramatically different results that were not as dire as the um, as the Imperial College model. And so their paper suggests that up to 60% of the population in the UK has already had the virus, without many without even knowing it, and that only 32% still had to get it. So that, of course, led to dramatically different results. And they said if that's true, the whole thing will subside in two to three months, and the health service would not be overwhelmed. So these are two dramatically different models. And um, the Imperial team went back and they studied their model again, and it's Ferguson, and they basically uh, tweaked it a bit. And they said that the health department could handle the peak if there was mitigation. Now, Imperial's previous paper had warned of 250,000 to 500,000 deaths if the government did not do anything. But with suppression, the new Ferguson model uh, predict there would be fewer than 20,000 deaths in, um, in, in Britain. Now, Ferguson insists that the lethality really hadn't changed. But his update factored in data that was showing a greater rate of transmission than the previous number, than he previously thought, which seemed to support the idea that indeed more people were actually already affected. Now, how can we make sense of these models? I mean, mm -hmm. all mathematical models start with kind of a well-defined question. Well, both both it, models are right in design, but they have different results. Mm -hmm. So what we could look at, so the, the question asks, the Imperial College model asks the question, what strategies will change the growth curve of COVID-19 and flatten it? That, that was the question they were asking. And the Oxford paper asked a different question. And that question is, has COVID-19 already spread widely? They asked two different questions. And, and, that, and they got two different results. Mm -hmm. so, so the Imperial College is what they call a stochastic model. It's, it's, it, it has chance built into it sort of how often, how many people are going to meet by chance and how much, how much will you transmit to them? So there's sort of, there's sort of chance and uncertainty built into their model. It's a stochastic model. And, uh, and if you have limited data, stochastic models, uh, you know, their predictions, uh, you know, can swing wildly as you change assumptions. So that's, that's what, what's, what's happened. So each time they add more data, they get different results. So when they added the new Italian data to the model, for instance, it looked terrible because the Italian death rate was so high in the offices and, and, and they needed it. And that's what actually got everybody on high alert. So they actually changed, they, they actually changed that model. They, they actually uh, did not uh, model the, um, how many people already had it in the UK because that data was simply not, not really available. Now, Ferguson based the model back on his 2006 work where, where he was modeling the, um, the, um, uh, you know, the, the spread of another virus, and he just basically just used the same mathematics and just put in different input parameters. Now, the Oxford model, the uh, Imperial College model, I'm looking at this, so the sort of the big, I'm, I'm going to that, there, that what it's quite interesting. The the um, you can see the difference, but if you look at the age brackets, so if you are below 
50, it's probably going to have a death rate, which is like similar to just the regular flu. Mm -hmm. So if everybody were below 50, I mean, it would just be like another flu epidemic. And But what happens is that when you get to the age bracket of 60 to 70, it's a 2.2% death rate. You go from 70 to 80, it's a 5% death rate. And you go above 80, it's a 9.3% death rate. So those were the percentages that they put in based on the Italian data, and that's what just scared everyone. Yeah. And and so they uh, so that that was their model. Now the 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 other model, the other model was uh, let's see here the now the now the uh, now the Oxford group they use what's called the deterministic model. Now this is one where you start with something that's known and then you and then you and then you try to calculate uh, a, a, an equation that matches the data. So what they were looking at they were looking at the number of deaths in the first 15 days both in Italy and in the UK as well as in China and they and they would get a curve of how that would go up and then they would take their model and they would match do curve matching to match it. And what happened is that when they actually matched the curve on the rise of the number of deaths in the UK, the best match for them was when they assumed that 63% of the people had already had the virus. Mm -hmm. So they were, doing, they were doing curve matching here in order to get that result. So these are two, two, two very different models, two very different approaches. Uh, and both are, I think, mathematically correct. But it just it. But what we're looking at the um, we're looking at the um, actual we're looking at the um, input data to see what what you're going to go with. So the um, but people ask them why in the world did they have such a dramatic impact and only believe the Imperial College model and not the Oxford model. By the way, there's a there's a University of Washington model that's very similar to the Oxford model. It's the same approach, and what what the policymakers said was, in fact, what really affected them was when they looked at Italy. And the crisis of the healthcare system in Italy was so bad that that result stimulated this massive movement toward isolation. Which in the long run may actually have been a good thing, right? Is probably was better, yeah. So mm -hmm. you know, you know, when when in doubt, go with real data, right? As opposed with with modeling. But right now, I th and so now the question is, uh, they're trying to figure out how can we transition out of this without having a recurrence? Because if you if you go to the uh, Imperial College model, they show if we relax the social isolation now, we're going to have another peak in November, mm -hmm. and so. The the whether we get another peak or not depends on how many people have already had it, right. and so that's why we need this antibody testing. Whether because once you've got it, you've got antibodies in your blood. So if we can do that testing and we know what percentage of people already have it, it can inform the policymakers. And we don't have that data. Some people believe you know the curve did not really peak that much out in the West Coast, out in California and Washington. They believe that might be because the virus had arrived there two or three weeks earlier and already they had it had had major penetration within the within the population mm -hmm. and and uh, and 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 so that did not peak so much out there 
There's also more anecdotal evidence. If if you look at the, uh, you know, that USS Roosevelt, remember they, yeah. they, they yes. had COVID-19 on that. Well, it turned out they did massive testing of everybody on the ship. 70% of the sailors had already had it. Interesting. And only four of the sailors were hospitalized. Mm -hmm. and, 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 one, one and one one died. But 70% already had it, and they were asymptomatic. So, so that might lend a belief, a belief that there maybe there uh, that people did have it, and mm -hmm. and so we have to get this antibody testing. And until we get the data, we don't really know what to do. Right. Exactly. You know, one of the things that's interesting in in, in Maryland for sure. Uh, nursing homes have been a really particularly hard hit spot, and so the, the 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 way to mitigate this was quarantining everybody. But this doesn't seem th this may have been to the detriment of what's happening in the nursing homes, don't you? Don't you think it'll be interesting to see how they figure out how to deal with this in in that sort of environment in the future? So, so what what has happened in the nursing homes? Remember, I said on that on the ship, the Roosevelt ship, seventy percent had it. Mm -hmm. Most of them were asymptomatic. People have coronavirus, they're asymptomatic, and then they're going to the nursing homes. And it's an asymptomatic person who's spreading it around the nursing home. Yeah, yeah. And we don't have sufficient testing. Right. And so you just can't take someone's temperature. That is the real problem, this lack of testing. Yeah. And so I think that's, that's, that has got, got to be out there as quickly as possible, because as soon as somebody's got antibodies, they're not going to get it, mm -hmm. then they could be the first ones that would go back into the workforce. Right, exactly. All right, we got somebody who'd like to play the game. Let's okay. go to line one. We're talking to Lewis calling from Rockville. Lewis, good morning. How are you, sir? Lewis? Hello, Lewis, you there? Let's try this again. Lewis, are you with us? Now... Lewis is, uh, seemed to have dropped off. Let's try this one more time, see if we can get him on there. Lewis, are you there? Lewis. Lewis, are you Lewis with us? There he is. Okay, Lewis. Okay, there Dr. we go. Shirts, go ahead and ask the question. Yeah, earlier in the show, I talked about uh, Neil Moore, Neil Ferguson. Of course, he's the big modeler. His mother was initially a librarian, and then she changed careers. What did she become? An English beast. Uh, I think yeah. that's close enough. Anglican priest. Yes. Close enough for Tech Talk. Close enough. We have Very a winner. Good. Hang on, Lewis. We're going to send you back to Andrew, and we'll take your information. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk, Herald on Federal News Network, <laughs> 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. We will be right back in just a moment. Stand by. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Let's talk about COBOL. Okay. Why does the financial world depend on COBOL so much? Even many of the government systems depend on COBOL. If you remember, I was listening to a press conference from the governor of uh, New Jersey begging to get some COBOL programmers because they had to reprogram their systems for unemployment benefits because they were changing everything, and it's all written in COBOL. He's really impressive. Governor Phil Murphy, right? Yeah. I've been Mm -hmm. impressed with him. So COBOL took the business world by storm. It's been out here for for since 1959, 1960. It's like 50 years old. It was rolled out by Grace Hopper. Remember Grace yep. Hopper? She was a phenomenon. She earned a, a doctorate in mathematics from Yale. She was a professor at Vassar. When she left the U.S. Navy, she had the rank of rear admiral. Now, she actually was driven to try to create programming languages that were, more, that were closer to English so people could just program it. See, up to her point, whenever you'd program a computer, you just put in zeros and ones, and they were basically coded in hexadecimal. And there was nothing, there was, you were just moving bits around, moving data around directly, and there was no, there, there was no high-level programming language that, that was easy to use. And so she built the first compiler. Now this, she invented the compiler, and this would take a high-level language, say, that was that was English-like, and it would convert it to to uh, to to binary, and so they could talk to the computer. So she invented the first compiler, and this opened the door for high-level languages. So she developed a program called Flowmatic, which was really designed for business processes. It, she was she was focusing on on creating business processes, kind of an English-like language. So she then got, was uh, put on a committee, which is the Committee on Data Systems and Languages, Codicil, in 1959. And that particular committee was tasked with developing a new programming language. And, and so they developed something called Common Business-Oriented Language, COBOL, Common Business-Oriented Language. And the first meeting took place June 23rd, 1959, and they wrote a report in the specification of the COBOL language. This was groundbreaking. For one thing, this language was written so it would run on any mainframe. 
The compiler, you just you just compile to a different mainframe. So the, the basic COBOL, if you'd write a program, it would run on any mainframe. Up to that point, every mainframe manufacturer had their own programming language. So this, something that, that could be moved around, it was earth-shaking. It also had a lot of uh, high-level concepts built into it. Uh, languages have something called reserved words. These are re 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 they do very specific things. And COBOL had 400 reserved words. And these, so you can, and you just piece together these reserved words to make a sentence, and you can have it, you can have it do many, many things. I mean, that's a lot of reserved words. For instance, uh, C language only has 32 reserved words, or Python only has 33. So the fact that it had 400 meant that it was extremely high level. Now it turns out that it took the business community by storm. Now, and it's still in use today because the language works so well. Right now, there was a survey done back in 2017 by Reuters. There are 22, 220 billion lines of COBOL code that are still in use today. COBOL is the foundation of 43% of all banking systems. COBOL powers almost $3 trillion in daily commerce. 95% of ATM card swipes are powered by COBOL. COBOL makes 80% of all in-person credit card transactions possible. Now, what has happened is that much of this code is not documented, and it's ancient. And so they're trying to get, um, and then, if, so it's difficult for companies to swap out and get out of COBOL. So there are all these legacy COBOL systems. So now they're trying to convince programmers to come out of retirement and start, you know, start programming in COBOL again so they can figure out and modify this code. But this is a, uh, this is a huge problem on how to migrate these legacy systems into, into uh, something other than COBOL. And of course, new programmers don't want don't want to become COBOL experts because that means they're working on ancient code that's not documented and all the all the new fancy stuff they can't get involved with. So, so you're, they're going to have to bring they call them bring back programmers uh, from retirement. They call them COBOL cowboys. We need to get more <laughs> COBOL cowboys back in the workplace in order to do this transition. But it's a great programming language and it was so good that we're that it's still in use everywhere. Mm -hmm. Now broadband. We are just about out of time. Yeah, we are really close. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so, so we'll broadband, just we'll just we'll just do that. Yeah. yeah, I think everybody's been interesting at having fun at home, uh, studying, and uh, looking at things. What we found is a real uptake at Stratford. A lot of people are interested in online programming, online online courses. So our online enrollments are shooting through the roof because people said, "Look, well, I'm at home. I might as well do something." Listen, go to the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu, and tell them you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.